Welcome everyone to Plugged and Unplanned. It's Tony Nance, the CEO of Booktopia, back with you again and something right up my alley. I'm so sorry for all of you. You're just going to be eavesdropping in on my personal conversation with this author, Rob Pine, who's got his new book, Unlock, Leveraging the Hidden Intelligence in Your Leadership Team, written for CEOs and leaders. So bad luck to you guys. This is just going to be a personal consultation, but come on in and you can listen to me getting a bit of feedback and debriefing on how Booktopia is going. Welcome to the show, Rob. Thank you. I'm really delighted to come have a chat to you. Thanks, mate. And uh, for everyone, uh, just so you know, in case the quality of Rob's um, audio is not 100%, we're, we're, we're being flexible, uh, which is what companies need to do. His, his computer died with his um, $1,000 microphone and he's iPadding into us today to make sure that we... We get this out of the way. So, but uh, from my perspective, it sounds pretty good. And look, on that note, like I'm dealing a lot with leaders at the moment about trying to stay above the line when things happen to you that are not ideal. How do you make sure your mindset stays positive? And I'm really embracing that today. You know, like I've had a lot of technology hiccups in the last 24 hours. Yeah, that's and one of the Try and stay above the line, don't you? Try and stay, they don't kind of let it get you down. Try and stay yeah. positive. Yeah. In fact, that's one of the things for me as a CEO of Booktopia. It's like, um, some people get into business thinking or expecting, I don't know, everything's going to go smooth or whatever. But when something comes out of left field, which you didn't expect, and it could be costly, it could be, you know, just a impact on, on revenue, whatever it might be, you got to be able to say, bring it on. And it's like, okay, I wasn't expecting this hurdle. I wasn't expecting this obstacle, but oh, you want me to go the distance or I, I'm going to actually respond to that. And that's very much a part of my thinking. And those that work with me understand that that's that's really the way that I operate, um, and and uh, you you've got to be able to deal with those challenges. So so Rob, congratulations on your book Unlock. This I think it's your first book. That's right, first book, yeah. Uh huh. So I've got to ask the question, debut author. Um, if you think back to high school and your English teacher, English teachers, are they going to be going, Rob wrote a book, or of course Rob wrote a book. Um, what's what are they going to be saying? You know what? That's a good question because uh, they would be saying, "What, Rob? Right? What?" Because um, I was a pretty good student, and I got top marks in like uh, most of the subjects, apart from English, where I got like a B grade. Right? So yeah, English was my least good subject. So it's a good point that I've come. I've come good late in life. <laughs> yeah. So don't don't trust everything that you read on your reports, everyone. Um, it, it's still you still may be able to dazzle your teachers in in the long run it's it's you're playing the long game when it comes to being assessed but i've got the, i've got everyone i've got the book in front of me and i can tell you that it is well put together in terms of the way that you've laid it out the, i can see the questioning and the and the kind of the way that you've broken it down but i will say from what i can tell it looks like you're self-published yeah look i had a, a publishing house help me along the way but I kept control of the, the journey as well. And for, for authors, you know, like me, specifically around the leadership team, stuff like that, there, um, you know, there's mixed benefits of getting someone else to publish it for you. So I, I opted to keep control of it. Mm, good on you. But I did use quite a lot of professional kind of advice to make sure it was a professional quality book. Yeah. I had a book coach, not a ghostwriter by any means, but a book coach just helping me structure it, um, et cetera, and a proper editor and cover designers and so on. Yeah, well, I can tell you from having seen oh, probably 100,000 books um, that uh, for everyone that's listening, uh, Rob's book is really well put together when it comes to self-published book. And there's no, you just couldn't tell that it didn't go through a normal publishing house. You've done a great job. So congrats on that. Um, when, so when you think about um, you know, the idea of, like you've obviously got years of experience of consulting and working with companies and to try and distill that down into, what is it, a couple of hundred, 200 plus pages. Was that, was that easy or difficult? Was, were you already, were you just kind of trying to kind of put, in, put onto the page what you quite often do with your clients or how, how do, you know, what, when someone buys this book, how they, what are they going to, what, what, how are they going to engage with it? I think the answer to that is yeah, you're trying to condense um, eight years work as a consultant and nearly 20 years work in big and small organizations in leadership roles and other roles. You're trying to condense that into something digestible that someone can either 
dip into a particular chapter and that meets their needs, or they can read all the way through. And that is the you know the big quandary I've learned from writing one book is um, yeah how do you simplify? How do you meet the needs of those two audiences? So so the way I did that was I created a um, what we call a nine box model, which basically says there are three layers of intelligence that a leadership team needs. And each of those three layers of intelligence has three things going on within it. And each of those nine boxes that you end up with has one chapter. And so the book comes with a diagnostic as well that you can do, and you can work out which of these nine boxes do I need to look at first. So you can really dip in and out of it. And it also, you can, if you want to read the whole thing, you can uh, go through the, the boxes one by one as well. So that was the, uh, the job of taking 25 years of work and trying to condense it into something comprehensible to uh, a busy leader like yourself. So when, I mean, obviously this is like micro-credentialing where you, you've taken somebody with a lot of experience and most of your clients, they would have engaged you for um, a piece of work which would have been you know, expensive consulting but with very clear outcomes, I'm sure, to then get your book which is you know, pretty cheap in comparison is there is there going to be enough in here do you think to to get people going or is this is this the start of something great in terms of look just get into the book and uh, whether it be you or somebody else there's a whole piece of work that sits beyond that that if you really want to go the journey that you're going to have to um, work with a work with a practitioner work with an expert to get the results for your company so you know, a book is, is in some ways to, to leverage your impact on the world. So can I engage more leadership teams by not being in the room with them? And so the book is designed to do that. So it does end every chapter with the how-to. It's got tools that come with it on my website that you can access yourself. So it's definitely designed to do that. I think the, 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 the quandary for every CEO, though, is do they have actually time to do that and lead it themselves, to do the work to actually invest in the team? Uh, or do they benefit from having an outside consultant as well? And that's a choice I'm going to leave to people to make. And, and clearly some CEOs know the value of their time and they can say, you know, it's actually worth getting someone like Robin because there's going to be a lot of extra benefit. And some CEOs can be, you know, I'm happy to do this myself. I quite enjoy it. So um, I'm trying to kind of meet both audiences. So certainly for my clients, I give it to them in, in conjunction with the work we do. And then other people can go and use it on their own as well. Mm, that's interesting because I mean you've obviously worked with a number of organizations and to be fair for me and Booktopia I don't see myself as a facilitator for this stuff I think I, I not that I worry but I'm aware that um, those that are in my teams and my direct reports probably won't be as forthcoming or, or this is the boss this is the CEO I, I better curate what I'm saying in that kind of environment so to me it would make more sense to have other people leading and for the CEO to be a participant of that group to be at the same level of those that are going on the journey so we um, we're all kind of um, that, that kind of authoritarian or the the, the kind of power structure um, is completely removed so we can get the best outcomes um, what's your experience there well, I, look, I completely agree based on my experience because the people that call me in, the CEOs that call me in, you know, I've worked with before or that hear about me, um, they have that mindset already. They're like, we need a facilitator, so I'm open to talking to Rob or someone like Rob. And so by default, the sample of people I see have exactly the attitude you've got, Tony, which is um, they know that they can have a better conversation if they're not in the driving seat because they'll dominate, right? Um, however, I'm also aware that there's, you know, there's hundreds of millions of CEOs out there who I don't talk to because they don't consider they need someone like me and maybe they find doing it themselves as well. But I certainly, I mean, I'll give you a real story. Like in July, we did a three-day virtual offsite forming a strategy for an Australian company. And at the end of it, the team said, that's the best conversation we've ever had, the deepest we've ever gone. We you know, did it three days online. Everyone was engaged. The strategy was more or less kind of drafted after three days. And you know, the, the quality of conversation is deeper. And the CEO was very pleased with the outcome because he said, like, it's difficult for him, but he's never been able to get that level of depth. Yeah, mm -hmm. so so completely agree. But I'm also aware that I've got this kind of biased sample, if you like. That, that's interesting. So when you think of all the clients that you start to get into a conversation with, and some of them will um, uh, eventuate into a piece of work that you you get obviously contracted to do or 
others don't for whatever reasons. But the type of organization where they're at or or like, can you can you literally get to a point when you're talking to a company where you go, look, I don't think I can help or um, um, you're, there's too many conflicting values or belief systems or like you're going to do the work and then it's, you just get a sense that it's going to go nowhere. Like, is there, are there kind of companies, I guess the reason why I'm asking that, this kind of question is, is that it does lead then into who might be, um, who might have the appetite to buy your book and, and want to get, get into it and start working through some of the processes and, and the challenges or the questioning that you, that you're proposing to the reader. So is there, are there, do you have to um, kind of, you're in, you're out um, with organizations or literally, even though they might go kicking and screaming into a, into a, a process, they, in the end, they ultimately will benefit. What's, how, how do, how do we all kind of, how do we all show up? How do, how does each potential client or each company qualify? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm lucky enough, having been doing this for eight years, that uh, the diary is fairly well booked and, and business is, is strong. So that does give me a sense of being able to also talk to clients and think about whether they're the right fit. And at the center of that is going to be a pretty simple question, which is, is this CEO open to being wrong? Which is another way of saying, like, have they got a learning mindset? And I mean, I was talking to a potential client that got referred to me probably, let's, let's say it was like six months ago, right? And I just really felt this particular person was still in that mindset of wanting to be right about everything and keep control. And that's a bit more difficult for me to work with. So I remember asking in my mind, I was like, I'm not sure this is going to be a good fit because the typical CEOs I'm working with, they are definitely part of the solution not the cause of the problems because you can appreciate that in some instances the difficulties with the leadership team are caused quite a lot by the ceo's style or personality or whatever right so at the center of that is basically you know, is this person open to being wrong are they uh, have they got a sense of humility do they know that other people can be better than them do they listen to other people's ideas so that's kind of the filter i'm going to be using when i'm thinking about is this a good fit mm. that I mean, obviously, I definitely qualify for that kind of person. <laughs> um, <laughs> you sound like it to me. You sound like you're quite humble. I don't know. Yeah, no, no. Uh, um, yes, I, I feel like I am, and I. But more importantly, um, I, I love that the the people around me are empowered to make things happen. It's really inspiring to me to to see that. But um, me, me aside, though, um, is it really like? The CEO, I mean, how, how important is it for the CEO to be included in, in this? I mean, the bigger the organization, Booktopia has grown, right? From, I started it in 2004 as a little side project in the evening, and now it's got, I don't know, 270 or 300 people. Who, who knows? Um, because in the distribution center, reflects up and down. But big company and, and as you, you would have worked with some very big companies do you get to a point where the ceo is kind of irrelevant because you're dealing with leadership that is um that is quite uh, empowered or has a lot of uh, control or ability to make things happen and you don't really need the ceo or or even the board um to be um part of the process or do do you really need to make sure that it's coming from the top down for to be for things to be effective yeah, look, so the reality of my work, you know, week to week is that I am 50% of the time I'm working with the top team and I need the CEO's absolute kind of buy-in. And 50% of the time I'm, I might be working in a big organization, but I'm working in a division with the functional leadership team in that division, right? So that could be the sales leadership team. And we're still talking about people like the, the leader of that team and the people that report to them have got 25 years experience, right? So they're absolute, they're leaders, but they're not quite the top team. And there are, you know, there are nuances with that, that they have to fit into the overall company strategy, et cetera. So, um, you know, I'm not always working 100% of the time with the CEO, and I certainly don't want to uh, get into kind of CEO worship and can't do anything without them. Um, but if you're involving that CEO's direct team, the top team, then, yeah, you need them to be uh, on the journey with you. Mm, interesting. And what about um, an entrepreneurial leader like myself who's really... Um, 
led the company from the beginning versus an appointed CEO. Uh, do you notice a difference between uh, companies where, I guess, for me, I have a much more, um, my D, I guess the DNA of the businesses has come from um, the, the cost, cost control, risk control versus um, a, a mercenary expert who gets appointed to lead a company. But um, if they get fired, they just go and get another job as a CEO somewhere else. Like, is, do, you, do you have a different, is there a different approach to those two types of companies? Yeah, there is, there is, because uh, so I've worked with some owner CEOs and some uh, big company, very different kind of proposition. And there are, I, I would, if I had to guess, I'd say it is 90% similar, but that's 10% of variation where the key stakeholder of the leadership team, because often I'll do an exercise like, who is the stakeholders of this leadership team, right? And obviously, when you've got an owner CEO in the room, like they're kind of the number one stakeholder in some ways, as well as the leader of the team. So that has to be acknowledged. It has to be acknowledged. So we're trying to be, we're trying to generate this thing I'm working on. The center of my book is this idea of collective leadership. So don't lead alone. Don't try and be the hero. Can we be smarter than the sum of our parts? But that, that variation is where you've got one person who owns all the shares in the company sometimes, like literally 100% of it. And everyone else has um, been there a year. And they've been there 20 years and owned the whole business. So. But I think um, with careful facilitation, you can navigate that. And uh, obviously, there are also many benefits from working with founder-led companies, which is you don't have um, the red tape getting in the way quite as much and you access to the 100% decision maker. Mm. So look, it's a great dynamic. And I like mixing it up and working on, on both sides of that equation. So I've got your book here. And um, as you said, it's broken up into parts. And then within the parts, there are chapters. Did you say before that it's one of those books where you're actually kind of in fact you've got to, at the beginning here navigating to navigate the book so there's obviously um a way of of approaching it but it's is it one where you actually do need to start at the beginning and and kind of work your way through or can you just simply shut your eyes and you know like and go all right today i need to learn about this you know and you open up the page and it goes oh playing playing the change cards to make your plan more robust, right? And I go, oh, yeah, 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 like, how, how do you feel like, is it really a, a pop in and pop out? Or do you, you actually need to, to, to work the, you know, the, go the course? Well, look, it's, I start answering that by saying, there's, there's one thing I, I really don't like about some business books, which is where the agenda is really esoteric, right? Where like the chapters, when you read the agenda, there's like 10 chapters and, and chapter three is called, the golden minnow or something. I'm like, what the hell is that about? I don't know. Mm. So I did a number of things to make this book super accessible so you can find immediately what you need. So the agenda is quite detailed and it says what it is. It doesn't say chapter nine is the golden minnow and chapter 10 is the uh, French connection. <laughs> I'm making stuff up, right? So um, the structure of the book is chapter one is like why do leadership teams matter, which is maybe a conversation we might have today, right? Chapter two is what are the challenges? And then once you've worked out what the challenges are in your particular team, then the next nine chapters represent, here are nine flavors of challenges I see with leadership teams. And then of course, there's a bit at the end about how do you wrap that up into a journey over 365 days. So I was trying to write this with the audience in mind of saying like, no, you don't need to read all of it. You can dip in and out. Um, you can get the tools you need. You can use it with online uh, support as well. So very much it's like, um, Let's target this at what you need. And there's basically three needs uh, overall that I, I work with, which is leadership teams that are forming, leadership teams that need fixing, and leadership teams that are doing a future planning. So the three Fs, future planning is like another word for strategy, but I like things that all begin with, you know, the same letter, right? So forming, fixing, and future planning. So we can also, you can access the book through that lens as well. So yeah, like um, for those who are going to pick up a copy, yeah, uh, thought about you a lot about how you might access this and get what you need quickly because it's not like you've got three hours to sit down and read the whole book so just i'm picking up a copy then um local bookstores um how is it um is it mostly going to be bought online through booktopia and amazon and other yeah yeah it's you know physical book and ebook available at all good bookstores including booktopia yep right so you've got it it's going into all bookshops as well it's not going into into bookshops at this stage because bookshops aren't even open, and obviously most you know most uh, sales these days are coming from Booktopia and, and the like. Right. Okay. 
Well, lucky us. Um, and you can buy it direct from my website, so it's pretty easy to get hold of. You know, you can have it in the answer five minutes and buy the ebook. Um, that's good. Actually, I might just why don't we talk about this because quite sometimes I might talk about this off off air afterwards. But I think it's important because you're a self-published author to understand. So, um, to, to to for authors to sell through their bookshops, uh, through their website, and direct to consumer means that the the sale is not being registered within Nielsen Bookscan, which registers all sales, which then becomes a bestseller. So, for example, um, a book called um, The Barefoot Investor um, by um, Scott Pape, right, massively successful, sold over a million and a half copies. Uh, it's massively uh, successful. So when he when he was um, launching that book in 2016, he reached out to us and said, um, I'm going to send an email out to my database. He had 140,000 people. He hadn't written a book in several years. And I want to uh, let them know that I've got a new book coming out. And if they could buy it from Booktopia, and and then they, I would give them access to a one-hour uh, free um, video training session via the, I, don't, I think it was like $199 or something. But if you buy the book this weekend as a pre-order, because it was going to come out in a few weeks, then we will, uh, we will be, um, you, you'll get access, you'll get a code and, and it would be great. And the reason why he did that is that he wanted to make sure that all the sales were being registered in Nielsen Bookscan. And so I remember this, um, this weekend really, really vividly because what happened was it was Chris coming up close to Christmas and I, I knew what our average sales were at the time and and I kind of I think I logged in at around 10 p.m on uh, the Saturday night just to see how sales were going it was Christmas and I logged in and it was like 4,000 orders more than I was expecting and I rang my IT guy and I said we're being hacked and he goes why and I said well our orders are here right and he goes he goes, hold on, let me have a look. And he goes, no, it's this book called The Barefoot Investor. And I go, oh, that's right. The marketing guys told me about that. We sold 23,000 copies over that weekend. Now, we didn't tell anybody. The publisher, John Wiley, didn't tell anyone. And Scott Pape didn't tell anyone. And then three weeks later, when the, when the book got published, all the books arrived into our warehouse. And we had shipped them out within 24 hours. And on a Saturday night, when everyone loads up their sales, that's us and Dimmix and Big W and Amazon and Book Depository, we're all loading up into the Nielsen Bookscan system. His book hit number one and everyone went, what the, you know, like, what is this book? And, we, and Booktopia had 98% market share. And what I learned from that and what the publishers in the rest of the publishers learned from that, how important pre-orders are because they, they generate um, an accumulated amount of sales, which then all go out in one week, which then, if you've got a good following, then you you could potentially make those sales. Now, I know other authors who have done um, sold stuff through their website. None of those sales get registered with Bookscan. Therefore, they can't influence the bookshops to go. Oh, I should I really should get a copy of Unlock, right? And I just wanted everyone to hear in terms of um, if you're an author and you and you do want to sell direct, there are that's great because you get to keep all of the money for yourself. But ultimately, Scott Pate knew that if he was going to have book selling a million copies they needed to be in the number one the top 10 and he was in the top 10 top five top three for a few years because he had taken that position so i just wanted you to know and i wanted others who are listening to know that that actually is one of the secrets or the keys to unlocking unlocking title of rob pine's book unlock um the that that the potentials of becoming a bestseller and have more of a um um, you know, like a, a pandemic um, of sales happening through the community as each, each person tells another person, oh, you should get this book. That's just a, an FYI, it's worth, it's worth noting. Let me, let me just give a couple of addendums there. Right? Number one is that uh, one of the reasons I decided to write a book, apart from trying to help people, right, which is the number one goal, but probably in number two slot was learning about writing books. And by extension, you learn about publishing books and listing them and there is so much to learn. I mean, you know, obviously you like a preaching the converted, but for someone who's listening, who's never published a book before, you're going to learn a huge amount. And, and Tony's just kind of illustrated just a, the tip of the iceberg, right? About the complexities when you open this Pandora's box of how to actually get your book into people's hands. Um, I think the second point I would just quickly make is understanding your own business model about as a, as, as a self-publisher or, whatever, or an author of any type is what are you trying to achieve with that book? And often like the, 
getting on Nielsen is not the number one goal. So it might be definitely for Scott Pape, you know, someone who's got that 140,000 list is going to be playing that particular game with their business model. But it wasn't necessarily the game that I was uh, playing. And it does feel like a game because you're trying to position the book into the right place and talk to the right people. So it's very interesting. Like just the, the learning curve of being a first-time author is amazing. Yeah, well, well I will, I will um, add to what you just said there. There was a few things you said at the beginning of, uh, of this podcast about what you did to um, to get the finished product, which a lot of um, budding authors, whether they be fictional um, or, or or business nonfiction, whatever it might be, um, the what people don't realize is how much editing and how much um, support goes into getting the finished product. Even for our very best best-selling authors around the planet, they have editors and people who are who are going through that. It's not like um, it's not like James Patterson or J.K. Rowling or whoever sat at their at their computer and just typed away and then oh my God there it is there's the manuscript and off it goes to the the publisher and they go oh thank you so much we'll we'll get that published for you it is a very um, robust back and forward of knocking it into shape and 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 those those guys are experts the editors and you even talked about ghostwriting and making sure that it had all the the, the, the parts there and they, they've that's their area of expertise i can't stress enough how people don't realize and that costs so if you actually want a finished product whether you're doing it yourself self-published like rob has done um or you're going to give it to a publisher they're going to be spending a lot of money knocking it into shape and and it is not cheap to have all those people um perfecting that so um it's a really important for others to hear what you what you did even though it was your first book, you were able to, um, you were you were wise enough to go. Well, I I need to bring in these experts and these people to. Yeah, yeah, and even right at the start, you know, like my my book coach, a lady called Kath Walters, she doesn't write any of it for you, but she she gets you on Zoom and she basically says to you things like, "What are what are five messages you would die in a ditch to tell people?" And I'm like, "Oh, that's a good question." And so that's the kind of coaching I had was, um, you know, what are these messages and who is your audience and how do they read? So it's very much about being audience centric rather than content centric and the content almost comes secondary. So this planning process. Mm. So, yeah, there's just a huge amount to learn. So I'm glad you picked up on some of that. So. Yeah, no, absolutely. That, and that's why when I picked it up and I see a lot of print on demand books and I can assure you, and that's why I really want to impress upon those that are listening to go, this is this, this you could consider it to have gone through a normal publishing house like John Wiley, who does a lot of business books. Um, they would look at this and go, great, great, great product. Um, you can't, can't fault it. So well done. And I, and from what it sounds like it was, um, there was a lot of hours uh, input from you and others to get it to that finished product, including the cover and the choice of just in, in terms of the choice of the title and then, and yeah. the image of the brain there with the, with the lock in there. That's, Someone is that you you've had a lot of good input. I can I can assure you. So so if we think about then the book or about some of the work that you do to give give us an insight, what what are some of the things perhaps that we haven't talked about yet that um, maybe we can share with the listeners so we can pique their interest? I mean, I definitely, as I always say, I don't want to give away the you know the, the guts of the book, um, and I'm sure we couldn't do it in a in in a podcast but um yeah we want people to go out and buy your book of course and that's the purpose of of having these conversations so but is there anything um that you can share with us that gives us a bit of an inkling in terms of what they may get or some of the um you know the the bridges that your clients need to cross that are that are always the obvious ones that we in that quite often they never think about we never do um and therefore, but once you've made that, you've made that crossing, that there's really no going back. And um, so I'm just curious around that, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, I mean, this is what I do all day. So I can talk about it for ages, but I'll try and summarize it for you. Right? So here's the thing. Leadership teams are not easy. Right? So for your listeners out there who are in a leadership team or leading a leadership team, they might have experienced that over their career. But um, despite the fact that you've got the maybe seven, you know, seven really clever people on this team it's there's no guarantee that leadership team is going to be more than the sum of its parts and um 
80% of leaders in the people in leadership teams don't think their leadership team is high performing. So the first thing is like, let's maybe accept that generally speaking, leadership teams are not easy to get them really humming and being smart than some of the class. Um, so the book really is about, well, how do you cross that bridge and get to a place where the, 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 the unique personalities and strengths and intelligences of the people in your leadership team add up to something fantastic, something inspiring. You're amazing at solving problems, delivering on your promises, building the culture for your people. And that's, you know, that's collective leadership. And, and my background as a psychologist, um, specializing in decision making, before I went into marketing, is you try to answer that question, like how do we get the best thinking out of this group of people? And that's what I'm assessed by, because you know, time and time again in the leadership teams I was in or the leadership teams I see, the subtle dynamics between the group mean that only one or two voices really get heard. And the smart people who maybe also maybe a lot more on the introverted side, they go unheard. And that's where we get leadership teams that are less than the sum of their parts. So those are some of the propositions and what are the things you can do based on science, plus my experience, to, in your words, cross that bridge to get to a place where your leadership team is a joyful place to be and creating incredible results. Mm, that's interesting. Wow. So from your experience, have you come to any kind of conclusion or just gut feel, intuitive kind of feel for what the right number of people should be in a leadership team? Like having a leadership team of three versus having a leadership team of 13 versus seven. Um, is there, is there the, does it always seem to kind of nestle into if you have any more than this it's it's trying to herd cats and anything less it sounds like it's a dictatorship look somewhere in the middle of that is this number of around six or seven is generally there's a little bit of a consensus that any team kind of operates best around that number it's not set in stone and it's not context specific so don't just just maybe have that as a little anchor in your mind and then if you're going to go up it might be because you've got a lot of functional divisions that you want represented. Like there's representative democracy almost going on. And, but that also has costs, as everyone listening will know, is that um, the more people you get, the slower it's going to move. Mm. Um, Interesting. Hey? But if you get less than six, you've got down to fives and fours and threes, you don't have enough cognitive diversity to bring these perspectives in. But then the flip side of that is cognitive diversity is tiring. So to work with people who think differently than you is actually, it's very easy for that to tip over into dysfunctional teams. Mm. Okay. So there's no answer, but you may be kind of, if, if, if you were forming a leadership team for the first time and you're new in a company or whatever, didn't have an existing leadership team, I'd be thinking about, look, if I can get six people to bring different perspectives and represent different departments, that's a good place to start. And maybe I'll go up or down from there, depending on, you know, you're going to be really driven by what are the results I want from this leadership team. And it's going to be driving execution of our agreements. Um, it's going to be hearing what's going on in the organization and feeding that up. So in some ways, you think of it like um, the leadership team is maybe some, something like an octopus where you've got the different arms feed up to the brains, uh, make decisions and then take actions out again. Mm. Good food for thought for me. Well, an octopus does have a brain in each of its legs as well, right? So that's kind of one of the other parts of that metaphor is that each of the each of the arms of the business has its own brain as well. Yeah, our, our leadership team is quite spread, um, but there are the aspects of those business units that are really operating of of their own accord, like our our distribution company, our publishing business. Uh, they've got their own goals, and they but they also need to be kept informed about what's going on the rest of the organisation. Um, so, so then out of curiosity from a CEO's perspective, and now I'm just really, you know, this is just really for me, how much of a, do you do any gap analysis in terms of uh, having come from your, 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 you know, your background in terms of psychology and, and decision-making, like as a CEO, am I able to get some sort of report, a school report, um, um, to go, you know, like, okay, you, you got an A for this and you got a, an A for that, but geez, you're a D for this. Is there some yeah. sort of gap kind of like and go, all right, Tony, you're this CEO and therefore you need to make sure that you're 
you're being compensated by having other people who are strong on this. I feel like I've done that over the years, but I'm still, I never feel like, and especially as the company's grown, um, last December, we listed on the ASX, which brings a whole different level of, of accountability and governance and, and growth and so forth. So is there, is there, is that an important part of, of what you do or what should be done um, with teams to, to yeah, 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 yeah. I, I think it's really imperative to track the progress of the leadership team over time. So we need some kind of metrics and measures. Uh, I do that in a couple of ways. The, the basic one is a self-assessment from the different members of the team rating their behaviours. And I wrap all that up into you know, a team IQ score. So we're all familiar with a person who has an IQ which averages 100. And I, so I can, I can, you know, I can give your team an IQ score and. Uh, you know, quite often there's something funny happens, which I'll say that, you know, your team IQ is 103, which is a little bit above average. And people go, like, oh, man, is that all? And they have this strong incentive to try and improve it. Uh, now, underneath that headline figure, uh, uh, you know, which is a self-assessed figure, right? So it can be accompanied by some observational work by me to make it more robust. It's basically self-assessed. Um, underneath that, there's three types of intelligence I think leadership teams have collectively, right? which is their emotional intelligence of the group, their practical intelligence, how good are they getting stuff done? And then their creative analytical intelligence of problem solving and strategy. So I can give you scores for those three as well. And then we can, there are some sub scores under there and that match the nine boxes in the book. And we can start to tell you, well, here's where you need to work. And we can track that over time. And one of the best parts of that is by gathering the perspectives of the different team members, you can put some data on the table and have a much better conversation around where the team is at. So that's part of the benefit. It's not to say the numbers are objective. They're not, they're subjective, but by seeing the range of perspectives, like I was working with a team last week in a quite an important public, uh, public sector organization that's in the press a lot. And the five people on that leadership team realized there was almost like, for example, two people thought the team was not a safe place to express contrary views. And three people thought it was. So you put that up in front of them, there's a bit of a realization here. Not everyone sees the leadership team and experiences it the same way I do. And that's where the quality conversations come from, right? And so that team, we would say, well, actually, you know what? You're getting stuff done and you're solving problems, but uh, there's not enough trust, psychological safety, emotional intelligence, whatever you want to call it, in your team. And that's, um, you know, an interesting moment. And so I remember one of the people emailed me afterwards and said that was really really awesome to have that kind of conversation because mm, it's real because it's real and it's um you're putting things on the table to that in some ways to your earlier point the only facilitator can do is coming from a neutral perspective it's showing the range of perspectives and then says let's talk yeah i mean everything that is unsaid um is is um manifested through so many behaviors and and actions and inactions that um it all comes from the unsaid so by by shining a light on it and then uh, pondering over it enables you to shift if 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 the will is there so, yeah. Yeah. so everyone i've been talking with rob pine the author of unlock leveraging the hidden intelligence in your leadership team it's been an incredible conversation for me personally and congrats on on your book and and the career and the success that you've had we come down to the, the last part of our podcast where I throw it back to the, the knowledge expert to ask me the question for the purpose of the listener to hear what someone who's a, an expert in their, in their field, what they might ask of me, the CEO of Booktopia, to then consider what they may answer, have answered themselves. So um, I'm going to throw over to you, Rob, to ask me anything you want and you're not limited to one question so um we've got we've got 10 minutes or so to to see sure. what we can unpack but the first thing that you that you said that, that, that i was interested in not the first thing but one of the things that you said that, that sparked a question in my mind right was this idea about your leadership team and you described it and you described it um quite distributed it sounded like it was quite large it had a lot of operational different you know different divisions in it and so the question for you is, how do you separate out the operational issues from the more strategic issues in your 
leadership team because I often see people struggle where the leadership team actually gets the conversation they have and end up getting completely dominated by operational issues, which is a bit more of a management thing. So that's the question. How do you separate operational versus more longer term strategic issues in your group of leaders? Right. So um, we have a strategy team. Quite frankly, since we listed has really started to form. Um, and and so uh, one of our um, one of our long-term team members is going to be the, our chief strategy officer. And within that group, there is a head of strategy, a head of delivery, which is all of the projects that we're running and then and then um, continuous improvement. So for me, um, the head of strategy is really looking at all of the ideas and possibilities that we could do. So their job is to really understand and do the feasibility um, studies of, is that possible? What are like, if we want to go to New Zealand, for example, you're like, okay, what do we really have to do to go to New Zealand? Uh, and so they can start to map that out and we can get a feel for some of the um, commitments, investment um, processes, um, recruiting, whatever it might be. So it starts to have a bit of, bit more meat to it. And then that could, once it's kind of gone through and go, okay, this is something we can do. Then we can deliver it to our head of delivery who's got, who will manage the internal stakeholders, marketing, IT, um, our merchandising team, finance, et cetera, um, logistics to, to then go, all right, this is what we're attempting to do. This is, this is where we are today, position A, and this is position B. We've agreed that that's where we wanna go. So these, this is what we've mapped out and how we, how we can go there. And then our continuous improvement manager is constantly looking at what we have, the status quo right now and going, where are the tweaks? Where are the opportunities? How can we save time, save money? Or make more sales, and and so therefore, um, so from a from a that's kind of evolved in the last year. We've been doing it um, piecemeal, but we've now committed um, ourselves, and it's tre tremendously um, positive impact already by our head of strategy. She's doing an amazing job to to herd us all together and to get us to uh, to workshop and and take each team into their own areas of of what, you know, what's their mission, what's their purpose as a team, as, as against or at, with, within the whole Booktopia mission and vision. So, so there's, there's a lot of, the, of those things that are kind of going on as well. So um, that, that's how we've gone about it in, um, of late. And look, so that's a really interesting approach that you can do now you're ASX listed and you've got 270 people, you can scale that. and um, Sometimes that's a bit difficult in the smaller organizations, small to medium size, where they don't have the luxury of having someone just dedicated to that. So the leadership team has to do both. They have to occasionally think strategically and long-term and daily think about operations. And, and my advice to those teams, which is different to what you're doing, but is like to, to try and make sure you keep those opportunities both regular but separate. Hmm. That's the easiest we, way. To we definitely couldn't do it when we were smaller. We yeah. did do it, but it was, it was almost like... Um, amongst everything else you're doing um we also have to do this and it was yeah yeah um and so it was a second second job for for a lot of people so it's great to have got to this level to to be able to do it can i ask you a couple more questions yeah go on so the big question is you know based on some of the things we've talked about in your experience is what's holding your senior team your leadership team What's holding them back from being even more successful in your view? In terms of the dynamics between the team, the ability to, to kind of follow up and deliver and build the culture you want, what, what's holding them back? Um, it's a tricky one because I'm, I'm not a glass half full or a glass half empty person. I'm a glass full person. Okay. Um, so I'll, I'll always look at the, the positive um, and, and, um, perhaps and sometimes overlook the negative. So I think those guys would be, be interesting to ask them and see what what's going on for them. My, from my perspective, having built Booktopia up from a $10 a day budget in 2004 to a $220 million company today, where we did our first capital raise at the beginning of last year, beginning of 2020 of $8 million, so we were large. We we grew from nothing to 150 million in revenue organically with uh, with 15 million dollars of automation at the time and 10 million dollars of stock and 180 people, whatever it was. So there was it was self-funded, and 
So for me to have now transitioned from being a um, capital um, cash um, poor or, or not poor, but um, you're always kind of investing and growing to now be in a position where we can, where we can invest and get things done without it impacting our, our cash position means that there's been a, an adjustment of, of, of having to now get access to all this opportunity, but not having the time to really make that, those changes. So I think I, it feels like we're in a, in a transition phase of, of being a, um, a startup um, cash, cashless business um, in terms of excess cash to, to now be able to get, get things done. And it's just, it just takes a while. You've got to be patient, I think, to, to make those things happen. So from my perspective, um, I think everyone can see the, the horizon um, and, and there's a little bit of impatience that, oh, wouldn't it be nice to, to be a Harry Potter and have a wand and go, let's just, you know, wave it and we're done. Um, so there's, <laughs> to me, it's just kind of having to go through the, the, the op of, and now being able to, to me, it feels a bit like opening up the pipes. So for many years, we kind of, that's all the pipe we had and that's all we could kind of, you know, stuff could go through that way. But now the pipes, we've been able to get much bigger pipes, so a lot more can happen. And so, so that's how it feels to me largely. We've been largely constrained because of that. And when you go through that huge transition, the, the capital raising and the ASX listing and all those things, right? So, you know, some people would say that you really need your leaders to grow a lot in the skill sets they have, particularly, you know, fronting up to the, the shareholders and ASX every three months or six months or whatever you do. So have you, have the, do you see that your two ICs have had to go through a big growth in that period? And how have you supported them? No, because I, I do all of that. And, oh, okay, okay. Uh, and I have my CFO uh, with me who's uh, very experienced and, has a, and so I've got a really good board. Uh, my chairman uh, has been with us for four years. He was the uh, chairman of an ASX50 company called Dexus. So he's, I've got a lot of great counsel around me as well. And, and my, my non-executive directors have been really helpful. So uh, having that advisory, I think is, is really been really good because I know the business really well and I'm very passionate about Booktopia and I've got a clear vision. Um, I feel pretty comfortable selling um, and talking about it because I know it intimately. Um, perhaps if I was appointed and I was still trying to get my head around this company that I've now taken on the leadership position maybe I wouldn't be able to um, communicate that as well but because I've been doing this for a long time I feel pretty comfortable with talking to journalists and talking to um, fund managers who've got you know, tens of millions of dollars to invest in businesses so, um, bit... so maybe if I squeeze in one last question for you right, so the visual I have when you talk to me is um, of a universe where you are the bright sun and you have all these other leaders around you in slightly different orbits you've got your strategy team delivery team your day-to-day -day kind of leaders and managers your board your advisors um, you're very much in the in the middle of that universe because you're the founder and you're still very active and very positive just like the sun um, how do you shift so that you have some kind of exit plan in 10 years where you can go off into the sunset and relax on a beach. Um, my wife reckons that, that um, that'll be very difficult for me to do. Um, <laughs> okay. But um, it's, it's about planning for it. It's about understanding the, what work needs to be done and then slowly stepping aside. Even Jeff Bezos of recent has stepped out of the CEO role into an executive chairman role and, it just, it just takes planning and this is the work and this is what needs to be done. And we've done it over the years. I think that's one of the things for me is that um, everything that is being done in the company, I was doing at one point, whether it was the, the PR or it was the picking or whether it was the packing, I've done it all, right? So you, you get to certain levels where you continue to, to hand over to others rather than, I'm not a control freak. I don't want to, it's like, I want to, I want to, pass that piece of work on to somebody else so they can get to do it. I don't want to, I want to be able to continue to separate myself from that. So, so I, I don't see that as, as an issue for me to, to create um, a succession plan and eventually retire. I mean, I'm 58 now, so another 10, 15 years um, of, 
enjoyable building the business up to a billion multi-billion dollar company is part of my you know, part of my personal mission um but from a um from a letting go i think that's the thing it's like how do you let go and how have you let go in the past how, what have you been doing to let other people take um ownership and control and and be empowered to run those areas and if you can do that well then um then i think um it's going to be easier for you to to plan um to replace yourself as a ceo see ceo is is you know it's a piece of work that um you're in control of the battleship and you're looking at all the dials and um, hopefully you're at a point where you feel like you can look at all of that and get a good a good assessment of of you know where the world is at um, yeah, yeah my, my kind of closing comment on that one would be this idea of collective leadership would literally using the metaphor of the sun and the planets we're making sure the planets are aligned so that collective leadership you know, all those people you've got advising you create something that's more than the sum of their parts they're aligned and they build yeah. off each other and feed into each other yeah, and that could point. be uh, yeah i think when you when you started asking me that question what visual came into my head is like alpha centauri the main star the brightest star in the sky uh, for you know 4.2 light years away and um out of the constellation centaur and and um if you've got a big if you've got a big um um telescope you can see there's actually a, a couple of st stars in there there's a smaller one and a larger one and and I, what the image was for me is like well if you were to drill in further like using google maps going closer oh there's actually quite a lot of separation in the beginning it just looked like it was tony and the ceo but quite frankly the more you go in the more you realize how um how balanced it is and and that it is that kind of um um it's a it's a combination of a number of people who are it may look like i'm in the center but quite frankly as you go further and further out um um it you know it, you realize it's it's all one system and but within that we're all we're all separate and that that's how it feels for me i mean i don't know whether that's how everyone feels and when you run the process all of these things come up and you get you know the ceo gets a slap in the face and goes, well actually um now you're a real dictator and um, <laughs> And uh, so it can be worth planning on that because uh, you know oftentimes the team do have a slightly different, interesting perspective on on the, the dynamics. So anyway, all good. Um, maybe we'll do an astronomy podcast in the future. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Anyway, um, thank you, Robin. Congratulations on your book. It's uh, it's you've done incredibly well. I think people can tell from from some of the comments I've made, and we look forward to hearing of your continued success. And this is a great calling card for the the consulting work that you do. So, if anyone who also you know buy rob's book but also www.robpine.online um if you want to reach out to him and and perhaps have a catch a conversation about whether you can be of value to your business as well well done and look forward to catching up soon thanks tony being delighted to uh, converse with you today good on you thank you for listening to the booktopia podcast channel don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces and more. Or, if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore at booktopia.com dot au